Good morning. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 with me if you would. We've spent our summer so far walking through the book. I am a church member by Dr. Tom Rayner, and we've been preaching sermons that correspond to the particular chapter in the book. And so over the last six or seven weeks, we've, we've talked about the privilege that we enjoy as Christians to be a part of a local church. Our pastor reminded me again this morning in our prayer time before the first service that many people go their entire lives without being a part of a local church and, and understanding the blessings that go along with uh, church membership, being a part of a body of believers who invest their lives with each other. Uh, we've talked about the blessing of spiritual gifts that God has endowed to each of his, of, of his children that uh, we're to use to serve him and to be a blessing uh, to our other members We've been reminded of the necessity and the importance of praying for our leaders and the privilege of that uh, prayer for our leaders as our leaders are privileged to pray for the members. And then last week our pastor reminded us that membership is a great gift from the Lord. It is a great gift from the Lord that we, we don't want to take for granted the fact that we are able to gather in this place today, hundreds of us. We're in other parts of the world, for example, uh, they worship in secrecy. Uh, they worship in dark places out of fear of persecution. And yet God has blessed us with this thing called church membership. What a great blessing of the Lord. Even though we've completed the book now, last Sunday was the last, um, the last sermon out of the book itself, we wanted to continue on for a couple of weeks with uh, a couple more sermons pertaining to church membership on issues that the, church, that the book did not necessarily address. And one of the, those issues this morning revolves around a very misunderstood principle uh, in the church. And I'm not speaking about in our church in particular, but I'm speaking about the church uh, broadly in a general basis. And that is the principle of church discipline, of being an accountable church member. Part of membership is, is realizing that you are an accountable church member. You are accountable to others, and others are accountable to you. I am accountable to this church body, not just because I'm a pastor and they have the authority to fire me, which is, which is true, but I'm also accountable as a member. I'm accountable for what I believe and for how I behave. The church has that authority over me uh, as a Christian. And so uh, if you're like me, when you hear that phrase church discipline, there's a temptation to kind of recoil at that, uh, to think, well, that doesn't sound very nice. It doesn't sound very encouraging. Uh, we're tempted to, to, to think about that in a harsh sort of a way. Perhaps it's because we don't like the idea of being accountable to anyone. And there are those in our culture today, are there not, that just don't want to be accountable to anyone. They don't want anyone to have any impact or influence as to what they say, what they do, uh, how they believe, or how they behave. They don't want to be accountable. And if they go to church, they want to be able to slip into the church and enjoy the worship, enjoy the things that the church has to offer, then slip back out of the church and not have anyone involved in their life, not have anyone knowing what's going on, good or bad. They just want to remain very private, very... Uh, uh, separated from the church body. Some people just don't want any accountability. But I think a bigger issue for most of us in the church today is it's not so much that, that we don't want any accountability. It's just that we don't understand what church discipline is. And by default, we don't understand what it is not. And therefore, we don't understand the purpose behind it. 
And so when you hear that phrase, church discipline or accountability, it sounds really terrible. I mean, if you're going to read your best life now, you probably are not going to read about church member or church discipline in your best life now. Because it just doesn't sound encouraging. It doesn't build us up to think about that thought. It sounds harsh. It reminds me of when I was growing up and, and when my mother would sometimes say, just wait till your father gets home. Well, I wasn't a very smart kid. First of all, if you're a mom and your child is misbehaving, don't wait till dad gets home. Just deal with the issue. Don't make dad be the bad guy. Whichever parent is, uh, is there dealing with the child, deal with the child. But in my, in my case, inevitably, I wasn't a very smart child, and so I would always mess up early in the day. I couldn't mess up at 4 o'clock in the afternoon right before dad pulled into the driveway. No, I had to mess up at 9 a.m., and that... And that is what made the waiting that difficult. Wait till your father gets home. And the worst part of the discipline was the waiting because inevitably, you know, I had to wait for eight hours to see dad's truck pull into the, into the driveway. It seems horrible. It seems hard to think about. And yet I want to submit to you this morning that just like the other blessings that come with church membership, church discipline is actually a blessing of the Lord. It's a blessing of the Lord when it's carried out and, and practiced in a biblical way and when it's understood the purposes uh, that are behind it. And so I want to read a very familiar passage this morning from 1 Corinthians 5. It's only a 13-verse chapter, and so I want us to read the entire chapter. It's probably the most well-known uh, instance of church discipline in the, in the Bible, but I want us to look at principles of church discipline to help us better understand what it is, what it's not, and, and what we're committing to as church members. In 1 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 1, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in the body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Well, this is a very... Very awkward passage in some ways, what Paul is writing about that's going on in the church. But there's obviously an egregious sin occurring, and so Paul writes this and devotes this passage uh, to dealing with this very difficult subject as to how to discipline 
this church member uh, who is not following the Lord but is practiced and engaged in a very public sin. And so I want us to see four thoughts this morning. The first point is very simple. Discipline is necessary within the church body. Discipline is a necessary part of church life. You know, the city of Corinth was much like our culture today in that it was inundated with sexual promiscuity, and that sexual promiscuity had made its way into the church as well. And so Paul, in the first two verses, tells us that there is a, there is a man in the church that is having an immoral relationship with his father's wife. You say, that's an awkward phrase, father's wife. What exactly does that mean? Well, most likely it means it was the man's stepmother. And we don't know if the man and the woman were still married. We don't think that they were because Paul didn't accuse them of adultery, which would be the case if this, if this stepmother was still married to the man's father. He doesn't charge adultery, but he talks about sexual immorality. And so it's very likely that the man and his wife had been divorced and perhaps because of this immoral relationship, even between the man and his stepmom. Now, this is scandalous even in that time, even in the city of Corinth, that this would happen. In fact, in Leviticus 18, the Bible tells us that God views this the same as someone having an immoral relationship with their natural mother. In God's eyes, it was an incestuous relationship. And to complicate matters even more, it wasn't an issue of of this man and this woman made a mistake and this man immediately repented of his sin. It wasn't a case that he was sitting in the apostle's office saying, I've made a terrible mistake, I've committed a heinous sin and I shouldn't have done it and I want help so that I don't want to continue to make the same mistakes and commit the same sin over again. No, that's not what was going on at all. Furthermore, it wasn't a one-time mistake or a short-term affair even. Notice the present tense word uh, verb of has in the first sentence, in the first verse. That a man has his father's wife. No, this is an ongoing immoral sexual relationship. And this gentleman who is a member of the church is unrepentant. He is not sorry. He is not turning from his sin. It's been going on for quite some time and everyone knows it. It's very public. It made its way back to the Apostle Paul. And and what's even more disturbing to the Apostle Paul, I think, than the fact that it was going on, is that the church was tolerating it. The church was tolerating it. Paul said in verse 2, instead of mourning, instead of grieving over this sin, you, as a church, have become arrogant about it. You've become arrogant about it. Say, what in the world does that mean they've become arrogant about it? Perhaps they reason it in a way as an expression of their Christian liberty. There are those today who say, I'm in Christ, I'm covered by grace, therefore I can do whatever I want to do. And there will some who will say, it doesn't matter how it affects those around me. It doesn't matter. I'm in Christ, grace abounds. It's an expression of their Christian liberty. Perhaps they defended it in those terms. Maybe they saw their tolerance of the sin as a sign of their Christian love. I don't want to judge anyone. After all, I'm a sinner myself. Uh, Who who gives me the right to to judge this man's sin? I love him, and so I don't want to say anything negative. I I don't want to uh, confront him in any way. The problem with that is it's not a biblical view. It's simply not a biblical view. Paul wrote in Romans 6.1, Shall we continue to sin so that grace may abound? God forbid. God forbid. 
And so not only was this a type of sin that was forbidden under Jewish law, it was even forbidden under the Roman law. Paul, Paul says in this, that this church member is practicing a sin that doesn't even exist among the Gentiles. In other words, this man is doing something that even non-believers did not believe in. And as a result, the witness of the church was being compromised. The witness of the church was being compromised because it was public knowledge within the community. Paul is reminding this church at Corinth that they're to be different from those who are not Christians. In other words, Christians have a responsibility to live lives of holiness that reflect the nature and the character of our holy God. God says, you be holy because I am holy. And so there is a responsibility to live a life of holiness before the world. And so the church either portrays a very negative witness of the gospel or it portrays a very positive witness of the gospel based on how we conduct our lives. You say none of us are perfect. That's absolutely, that's absolutely correct. And so the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not that one is perfect and one's not. The difference is not that one person sins and the other one doesn't. The difference is that Christians grieve over their sins. Christians do not want to commit sin. And so when we, when we do sin, we're to, we're to repent of that, to turn from it, and to ask God to help us uh, to live lives that are pleasing to him. And so while none of us are perfect, uh, each of us, when we join a church, we are covenanting together to strive to live in such a way that the gospel witness would be one that would point people to the cross rather than point people away from the cross. And when that covenant is broken, other Christians have a responsibility to hold that individual accountable. Now, this is an extreme case, but there are many other levels that we're going to look at momentarily. But you might be sitting out there this morning, and you might be asking yourself this question. Who gives us the authority to do that? After all, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 1, Judge not, lest you be judged. And Jesus did indeed say, Judge not, lest you be judged. I believe that verse wholeheartedly, but I also believe that there's probably no other verse in the Bible that's misinterpreted as often as Matthew 7, 1, Judge not, lest you be judged. Furthermore, those people who usually quote that verse when someone's calling them out on something that they've done or they're not doing, they don't really believe that verse in the way that they're quoting it either. For example, if you take that verse as it is without any context, without putting it into context or looking at the remainder of Scripture, it seems to me that would imply that no Christian can serve on a jury duty. And yet I don't know of anyone, uh, a couple of years ago I got the dreaded letter in the mail. I had escaped for over 20 years as a resident of Louisville. I had escaped jury duty. Now look, I'm, I'm honored to live in a country where I get to be a part of that process. It's, it's the process. It's not that I minded being on jury. It's the, the issue of having to drive downtown or, or check every single day for two weeks to see if I'm going to be called, and then they call you downtown, and often you're excused, and it was a waste of, of a day. But, but the jury duty itself is a privilege. But I received that letter, and I thought, man, is there any way I can get out of this? Well, you know what? The one way that never, never came to my mind, I, I could never call them and say, you know what? I'm a Christian. And Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. And so I cannot sit on that jury because being on a jury would require me to judge whether a person is innocent or guilty. And so that's not the proper interpretation of that, of that verse. Um, certainly the verse is correct in that we should never judge someone's motives. 
If I cannot see your heart, I should not judge your motives for, for something that, that you've done, for something that you've said, a decision that you've made. I can't look at you and say, well, I, I, that was just done out of greed, for example. Well, how do I know that? I've, I'm judge your motives. That's not right. Nor should I be guilty of judging someone for a sin of which I'm also guilty. I may be doing something uh, equally bad or worse. So the verse of Matthew 7, 1 is certainly a true verse, but it does not mean that we should never judge those within the church. The fact of the matter is, uh, in Matthew 7, he addresses that, but in Matthew 18, 11 chapters over, the Bible gives us, as the church, the authority. Turn over with me to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, and hold your spot there. We're going to look at it um, momentarily, but... I want to just read this passage. It says, If your brother sins, beginning in verse 15 of Matthew 18, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. Let me just stop for just a moment. If your brother sins, how do you know if your brother is sinning if you make no type of judgment? That's impossible. And so the very fact that that the Bible is saying if your brother sins requires some sort of judgment uh, on an individual to determine what this person is doing goes against God's word. So he says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now this is a very interesting passage because what it's not saying is, it's not saying that we confront every person over every sin. Because the Bible recognizes that we are all sinners. If we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. And so we're all sinners. And so he's not recommending that we confront a person over every, every sin every time they do something that's wrong. Uh, because that would be one long confrontation. If my wife confronted me over everything that I do that's wrong, that I'm sorry for, it would be a very miserable life. But he's referring to someone who has sinned against you or who is continuing in a sin. And he he gives us the authority. And you might say, who is it speaking those words? It's the same one who said, judge not lest you be judged. It was Jesus himself. Jesus himself gave us the authority. And by the way, he, he gave that authority and instruction concerning the discipline of the church. And the church had not even been established yet. Because the church had not been established until after Jesus ascended back to heaven. But yet Jesus is already speaking of the church. And when he says... If a person refuses to lit, witness or to listen to two or three witnesses, take it before the church. And if he still continues in the sin, treat him as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, treat him as an unbeliever. So Jesus is the one who gave us the authority because the church is his bride. It is the body of Christ. We are his ambassadors. An ambassador is one who lives in one country but who represents another country. And so when we do something, as verse 4 in in, uh, 1 Corinthians 5 says, in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you're assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, when when, when we do something in the name of the Lord Jesus, and we do it with the power of the Lord Jesus, we are by default doing it with the authority of the Lord Jesus. 
So Jesus granted us this authority and the responsibility to hold one another accountable, both for what we believe and how we behave, because he knew that that sin would run rampant through the church and that the church would become weak and anemic and people would not be drawn to Jesus because they would see nothing different in the church than what they see in their own lives and in the world around them. A lack of discipline in the church hinders the growth of the church. I want you to see, secondly, that discipline is varied in its appearance. Discipline is varied in its appearance. In other words, there are different levels of discipline. Now, when we look at this particular passage in verses 2 through 5, we see that two different occasions, in verses 2 and then all the way at the end of the chapter, in verse 13, Paul says this man is to be removed. He says in verse 2, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Then go down to the last part of verse 13. He says, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Now this is the most extreme case of discipline. And this is what people often think about when they think of church discipline. Is that, man, they're kicking somebody out of the church. They're excommunicating someone from the church. Is that what it's referring to? It is, in fact, referring to excommunication. They're being removed from the membership of the church. You say, why do they have the right to remove him? After all, aren't his actions between himself and God? You see, those are questions that that come to our mind when we think of the phrase church discipline. So let's think about for just a moment what exactly is church discipline and how does it play its way out uh, in in, uh, varied appearances, in different forms. Well, if you just had to define church discipline by looking only at this passage you most likely would conclude that church discipline is the process of removing someone from the membership of the church, from removing them from the membership of the church. But I want to suggest to you this morning that it's much more than that. Exclusion from church membership is the last resort. It is never the first option. It is the last resort. And in fact, and in fact you might be surprised to know that in the broad sense, the broadest sense, church discipline is practiced at ninth and O thousands of times every year. Thousands of times. You say, how, how does that happen? Because we don't, we don't typically vote people out of the church. We don't remove them from the membership very often. There may be a handful, uh, a couple each year, and sometimes not even, not even that much. But how, how then does it happen thousands of times? Because there is a positive, or what's sometimes referred to as formative church discipline a positive or a formative church discipline. For example, that type of church discipline, there's nothing negative about it. It's whatever helps us develop spiritually. It helps to develop our spiritual formation. People listen to sermons. That's part of spiritual formation. Half of our church right now is in a Bible fellowship group. They're being taught the Word of God and how to apply that Word of God to their practical everyday lives. That's formative church discipline. Uh, but there's also a corrective element to discipline. You know, it's interesting that the word discipline and disciple come from the same root word. Both have to do with teaching. You see, one of the purposes of the church is to disciple or teach its members to, uh, to, so that they're conformed. In other words, they become more like Jesus Christ. And one way in which we disciple people is through discipline. As one person has said, it's somewhat like a teacher who teaches both through instruction and correction. I, I don't know about you, but I'm not, I'm not certain that there are very many students that would study very hard were it not for the possibility of a failing grade. I mean, if they just gave no tests in school, I'm not sure how, how hard most people would study, how diligent we would be. 
Most people just simply aren't that, aren't that disciplined in their personal lives. But when we take the test, it shows us where we need correction, doesn't it? And that's how a student learns. And the same is true for the Christian. We learn from those who teach us, and we learn from those who correct us when we fail. And so a Christian who is never disciplined is like a child who is never disciplined. They're missing out on one of the primary growth tools of the Christian life. So in a broad sense, church discipline is what happens anytime the church addresses or teaches an individual, in particular uh, as it addresses the sin of an individual, including up to, if necessary, the removal of that person from the membership of the church. But listen to this, with the goal, with the goal of restoration and growth. You see, church discipline, even in its most extreme form, is not to be punitive. It's not to punish someone. It's to restore them and to help them to grow. When removal from the church is necessary, and again, that happens very rarely, but when that is necessary, the church is in essence saying that we no longer feel good about confirming that individual's faith in Christ. Now, we're not making a final judgment as to their, uh, to their final state in life. We're not saying that if you, that, person, that person is definitely not a Christian, is not going to heaven, because, because I cannot read and judge someone's heart. But we are affirming that based on God's word, they're not battling their sin. They're not trying to overcome their sin. They're resigned to that sin, and they're going to do that, and they not only want to do that, but they want the church to embrace it. They want the church to approve of it. Uh, And therefore, when when we remove them, we're in essence saying that we can no longer give spiritual oversight to that person because they're in a very dangerous place, a very dangerous place for an individual to be. You say, does that mean if someone gets excommunicated from the church that they cannot attend worship? No, of course not. They can, they're more than welcome to attend. We, in fact, Paul goes on and says, treat them like an unbeliever. Well, we want unbelievers to attend worship. We want unbelievers to hear the word of God. But what we're saying is they cannot be a member of the church. They can't celebrate the Lord's Supper. When we gather tonight as a congregation to celebrate around the Lord's table, a person who has been excommunicated from the church cannot celebrate the Lord's Supper. They can't serve in the body. Of Christ, We treat them the same way that we would treat an unbeliever. But, but again, let me emphasize that most of the time, that is not necessary. Most of the time, removal of the church is, from the church is not necessary. Generally speaking, discipline within the body of Christ should be confined to as few people as possible. In other words, as few people as, as needs to know. You say, that wasn't the case in 1 Corinthians 5. No, because that's one in which the sin was already public. Already people knew, and therefore it had to be dealt with in a public fashion. But that's not always the case initially. In fact, that's not even the case most of the time. You know, when someone, when you sit across the Bible study table from someone on a Thursday morning in a men's Bible study, and, and, and you're holding one another accountable, and you're saying, how can I pray for you this week? How's your walk with the Lord? Are you reading the Bible? Are you praying? How is your relationship with your spouse if you're married? Are you you keeping your eyes and your heart morally pure? That's all part of church discipline. It's not in a formal sense, but it's in a formative sense. It's in in a sense that is encouraging them and building them up. And then sometimes, they are, however, there's someone who's caught in a sin, and someone in that group will say, Brother, look, this is, this is wrong. This is wrong. You know, you're viewing Internet pornography, 
for example. This is wrong and you need, you need accountability. You need to put filters on your computer and you need to be accountable to us to help you walk through this. All of that is church discipline. That happens long before someone is ever removed from the church and that's why very seldom do we remove someone uh, from, from the church. In Matthew 18 that we looked at earlier, the purpose of that passage as Jesus walks us through it is to say, go to that person. If they've sinned against you or if you see them in a pattern of sin, go to them. But if they don't respond, take two or three brothers with you, two or three witnesses with you. And if they still don't respond, take it before the church. Now, the purpose of that passage is not to give us an exhaustive list of steps that have to be followed to the T in every instance. Because if that were the case, then 1 Corinthians 5 would be contradictory to that because in this instance, Paul commands him to remove the man. Just remove the man. But it does give us in Matthew 18 the general format that will be followed in most cases, and that is there, there is one-on-one uh, discussion. There, there's small group discussion. It keeps it as confined as possible. And it's a slower process that is patient with the individual because, again, the goal is repentance and restoration. And so if the person repents, that's the end of that. If the person says, you know what, I will place filters on my internet. I will do that because I don't want to to be unfaithful to my wife in my thought process. Well, then there's healthy accountability there. But if the person says, you know what, I'm not interested in filters. I like viewing pornography and it's none of your business. And it's none of my wife's business. Well, obviously the Bible begs to differ. And so in a case like that... uh, the circle continues to expand in understanding and knowledge uh, and, and recognition until the, person, uh, until the person repents or there's an acceptable resolution. Notice it begins in an informal kind of way. It's not necessarily the church leadership who's meeting with the person at this point in, in uh, Matthew 18. So here's a question I pose. How do we know how much time to take and when to institute formal church discipline? And I would simply say to you, I don't, think there's a, I don't think there's a perfect way to determine that. You see, Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 are the two extremes. They're the two extremes, and not every case falls perfectly in one camp or the other. Sometimes there are multiple variables. For example, we need to consider the attitude of the person and not just the sin they've committed. Let's say it's something extremely, extremely personal or extremely uh, sinful. What I mean by that is we need to take into consideration that different people have different weaknesses and different attitudes of their sins. And so if a person, if a person commits uh, an, an adulterous relationship on their spouse and they immediately repent and they're sorry for that, is that something, if it's not public knowledge, is that something we're going to take to the church? No. No, because it's been dealt with. But you understand that there is a vast difference between a person who's, who, who sits in a, per, in a pastor's office with a broken spirit over their sin. There's a vast difference between that person and another person who says, you know, I know that what I'm doing is sinful, but I have no intention of changing. I'm not only committing adultery on my wife, I have no, I have no intention of, of stopping You see, it's their attitude toward the sin. And so in the first instance, the process is going to be much slower and much more patient because because that person shows signs of repentance. And so I would say in the overwhelming number of cases in our church where we have had to actually remove someone from the church membership, it has been a very lengthy process, often a process of a year or two. 
Because if they show signs of repentance, we want to give the Holy Spirit time to work in their hearts and lives. We want to show grace. It's only when a person says, I simply don't care. I don't believe it. Either I don't believe what the Bible says or I don't care what the Bible says about this issue. I'm going to continue on. That is when we... Uh, that is when we remove them from the membership of the church. In this particular passage, what this man did was so egregious and so heinous and so public that the church had to take immediate action because this man's claim to be a Christian was in stark contrast to his lifestyle of unrepentance. So in verse 5, Paul says he's decided to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. You say, what in the world does that mean? That sounds horrible. Well, it simply means that Paul wants this man removed from the church. And when that happens, the individual is excluded from the blessings that come from worship and Christian fellowship. And God will often begin to exercise judgment on that individual. You say, God judges sin? Absolutely, especially on someone who claims to be a believer. God is judging them because God wants to bring them to repentance. God wants them to be restored if, in fact, they are genuine Christians. And if they're not genuine Christians, then they need to be removed from the membership of the church because church membership is for those who are Christians. But Paul's immediate concern about this man is that it's not the well-being of his, of his life, but that his heart is made right with God for eternity. Paul rightly understood that we live on this earth for a few years at best compared to eternity. And so Paul is much more concerned about the man's eternal destiny than he is about any present time suffering that the man might endure. And because he understood that the unrepentant person is more likely to see the error of his way and repent if he were put out of the church than if the church continued to wink at his sin and swept it under the rug. You might wonder, well, what would have happened to this man had he repented immediately? The answer is there would have been no, no excommunication from the body. What, what, if he had, uh, what if he had repented but it was already a public sin? In other words, word was, word was out. What if, what if it was a sin of that nature that became public but the man was truly repentant? Well, then I think, again, the excommunication would have been unnecessary. But let me say this. Because it was public at that point there would also have to be some sort of demonstration of public repentance. In other words, if everyone knew what was going on, you could not allow the congregation to assume that it was continuing to go on. And so there's have to be some sort of public repentance to, to show that, you know what, this was sinful, I'm sorry, I'm ashamed, I've repented of it, and I'm not doing this anymore, and I've asked God to forgive me in order for the congregation to recognize that repentance had occurred. In other words, one's repentance should be as notorious as one's sin. One's repentance ought to be as notorious as one's sin. So if I sin against a brother in private, if I insult someone in private and I intentionally hurt their feelings, it's not exactly right for me to go to them, or if I do it in public, it's not exactly right for them, me to then go to them in private and say, brother, would you, would you please forgive me? I've embarrassed and humiliated you in front of a hundred, but I'm going to come to you privately and ask for your forgiveness. No, as best as possible, if it was a public sin, it should be repented of publicly as, as well. One's repentance should be as notorious as one's sin. Third point, discipline is loving in its application. 
Discipline is loving in its application. There are three reasons that are either implied or explicit in this text and in other biblical passages as to why discipline is loving. We've already alluded to the first two. The first was found in verse 1 when Paul said that the witness of the church had been compromised because of this egregious sin that even the Gentiles or the pagans didn't allow. In other words, it's out of a love for the gospel witness that we, that we discipline members. It's out of love for the gospel witness. The second one reason was found in verse 5, and that is out of love for the offender. Paul loved this man. He wanted this man to be saved in the day of the Lord. And so he could not, in good conscience, allow him to continue to serve as a member of the church and to imply and to reinforce the idea that this man was, in fact, a Christian when, when realistically he probably was not. And so it was out of love for the offender. You know, our culture has a distorted view of love that essentially says love has no boundaries. Live and let live. But that's not love. That's sentimentality. The Bible teaches us, for example, to discipline our children. Why? Because we love them. Because we love them. When I discipline my children, I'm doing so because they've disobeyed and I need to teach them while they're young so that they don't establish destructive patterns of behavior that have even greater consequences in the future. I don't discipline my children because I hate my children. I discipline them because I love my children. So if I have to ground my son or my daughter or have to send them to their room or whatever the discipline might be, I don't do it because I hate them. I do it because I love them. And the Lord does the same thing to his children. Hebrews 12, 6 says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. So the Lord disciplines his children, and he's given the church a part of the responsibility in that process. Our pastor looked last week at Galatians 6.1, where it says, Brother, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself, or you also might be tempted. And so he's given us that process of restoring. It's the picture of the word restore, by the way, is a picture of of a bone being set back into joint. We're to restore them gently so that we're not also tempted. So when the church disciplines, it's it's doing so in order to help someone to abstain from destructive behavior or attitudes that will hinder their walk with the Lord. And if we fail to do that, we're deceiving them. We're helping them to deceive themselves because we're allowing them to say to themselves, you know, I'm not perfect, but I must not be too bad because the church is allowing me to, to practice this behavior Church is allowing me to, to practice these egregious sins over and over again. They haven't said anything. They haven't done anything. They think I'm a Christian, so I probably am a Christian. No, you see, we're helping them to live a, a, dece- a deceptive lifestyle. And our goal is that church discipline will help the individual to repent and be restored. And so even for those who have been uh, removed from our congregation, if they were to walk back in today and say, I am sorry of my sin. I've repented of my sin. We would welcome them back into the membership of the church. And even if repentance, by the way, doesn't occur, it's still a loving act because we're in essence saying to that person, you're in danger of God's judgment. You're in danger of God's judgment. You know, it's very interesting. In the Old Testament, a person would be stoned for committing such an egregious sin. And so when we look at this scenario in the New Testament, we might think, wow, things have really loosened up a lot. They went from stoning to just getting kicked out of the church. But let me tell you that when we exclude someone from the church, we're warning them of a greater judgment to come. 
A judgment far greater than the loss of life by stoning. It's an eternal judgment that comes from God. And so the most loving thing that we can do is to discipline them as a church while praying for their repentance and restoration. That's the most loving thing we can do. We love the offender. And finally, the third reason is found in verses 6 through 8, and that is a love for others within the church. Verse 6 says, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? In ancient times, when bread was about to be baked, a small piece would be broken off and saved. And that little piece of yeast would ferment in water. And then it would be placed in the next batch of bread to make the bread rise when it was baked. You see, the old leaven changed the new bread. Leaven in the Bible represents influence. The old leaven influences or changes the new bread. And here Paul's using it in a negative context. That's why one reason that why the Israelites, when they were leaving Egypt, they were instructed not to use leaven because it represented the old way of life in Egypt. They needed to break from the past. Paul is reminding us that as Christians, we're to be separated from our old way of life. And if that corruption, if that corrupt influence is allowed to continue, it begins to affect others, just like that piece of dough affects the rest of the bread. There's no restraint. The church is to serve as a restraint for one another in order to bring God's glory. So we do it as a warning, as a reminder to those within the body uh, when they identify with Christ and his church that their lifestyle matters. And many churches, I would suggest to this morning, are where they are today because they refused to discipline those who are practicing egregious sin, ongoing, unrepented of sin. Not, not because they were imperfect. We're all imperfect. Because they didn't have a desire. They didn't have a desire to serve the Lord, and yet the church turned their heads. And as a result, other members begin to think, well, it's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal. Healthy membership serves as a restraint to me. To me, that my lifestyle matters, that my choices matter. Finally, very quickly, let me just say this. Discipline is confined to the church. Did you notice in this passage that there's no mention of the stepmother? There's no mention of removing her from the church. Why is that? Most likely because she did not claim to be a Christian. She was not a member of the church, and so the church had no authority over her. And verses 9 through 13 shed further insight on that principle. Paul reminds them that when he told them not to associate with immoral people, he was not referring to the immoral people of this world. He's not saying that we should have nothing to do with the lost. God help us if that's the case. We, in fact, need to have relationships with the lost. We need, we need to eat with the lost. We need to share the gospel with the lost. Jesus often ate with sinners. We, we are to be concerned and love the lost. We're to seek to lead them to Christ, but we have no authority over them. But for those who are in the church who are living like the world, the Lord says we're not to associate with them. He, he says we're to discipline them out of a love for the gospel, a love for them personally, and a love for others within the church. I know a pastor who years ago, who years ago had a single lady visit him and inform him that she was, she was pregnant out of wedlock. She was ashamed of her actions. She was repentant. Let me make it very clear that her sin was not pregnancy. Her sin was not that she got pregnant. Her sin was that she was having sexual relations out of marriage. 
and she happened to get pregnant. But she came to the pastor because she recognized that her sin was going to become a very public one, a very public sin that people would be able to observe. And so she shared with the pastor that she was pregnant out of wedlock, that she had asked the Lord to forgive her, but because of the public nature of the sin and that she was a member of that church, she wanted also to ask the church to forgive her and to know that she had repented. It's a pretty mature thing. So on a Sunday, she stood at the front with the pastor as he explained her situation. And he shared with that congregation that this young lady is a single lady and she's pregnant out of wedlock. She's asked the Lord to forgive her, but she wants to ask you to forgive her as well because she's a member of this church. And you know the response of that church was, I think, identical to what I would expect this church to do if the same thing happened here. It was fast and it was unambiguous. We forgive you. And not only do we forgive you, but we commit to help you. We commit to help you raise this child. We commit to help you in any way that we can to raise this child in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And the response was overwhelming. You know, the interesting part of that story is that the following week, another young lady scheduled a meeting with the same pastor. And in tears, she confessed that she too was pregnant. And she was so embarrassed and so ashamed and so scared that she had decided to have an abortion that week to end the life of that child. But she shared with that pastor that when she was at church the previous Sunday and she saw how loving the church had been to the other girl, she changed her mind. And she would carry that baby and she would raise that baby. You know, she could have had an abortion and no one would have ever known. The church would, have not, would not have known. The pastor of that church would not have known. And she would have had an abortion had it not been for a church that was willing to do what the Bible teaches. We never know just how the Lord will use our obedience. But he will use it. In just a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. And it could be that you're here this morning and you're like that leavened bread that Paul spoke about. You're not struggling with your sin. You're not repenting of your sin. You're rather enjoying it. And God's word to you this morning would be to abandon that sin. Run from it. Repent. Turn from it. Perhaps you would do that right where you're standing or maybe come forward so that someone can pray with you. It could be this morning that you're here and you're not a Christian. We're not here to judge you. The passage makes it clear that we have no authority over you. But you do need to be reminded that this passage also says that God will judge you. Sometimes I hear people say, don't judge me, only God has the right to judge me. Listen, if you're not a Christian, that fact should not bring you comfort. That fact should not make you feel good. But it doesn't have to be that way because one of the reasons that we as Christians want to honor the Lord is because he loved us enough to die on a cross. He nailed our sins to a tree so that we could be forgiven. And you can be forgiven as well if you'll turn from your sins and place your faith in Christ. And then finally, for some of us this morning, perhaps your response should be one of thanksgiving and praise.
Let me ask you a strange question. Have you ever thanked God for a church that loves you enough to want to minister to you, even if that means correction? If you're looking for a church home this morning, I can't think of anything better to tell you than this church will minister to you, and if necessary, we will correct you. And both of those actions say the same thing, we love you. We care about you. We want the best for you. And if you're someone who is serious about your walk with the Lord, I'm not sure what else you could look for in a church. Would you stand with me for prayer? Father God, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for demonstrating your love at the cross. And thank you for demonstrating your love through discipline, that you love and discipline your children for our own good and for your own glory. And so, Father, if there are decisions that need to be made during this time of invitation, grant courage where courage is needed. Grant repentance where repentance is needed. And may decisions be made that would honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.